Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car... Use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader. Hi, everybody. I'm Fran Spielman. It's not often that anybody does anything for 50 years, but we have with us someone who has. Bill Cameron, WLS Radio, City Hall reporter, and a treasured friend and colleague of mine. Congratulations. Hi, Franny. Thanks for having me on. How did you manage survival? Uh, I took Ernie Banks' advice, find something you love to do and stick with it, and then I also never went into management. And that was a good thing, for it's, sure, it's in this business in particular. <laughs> you grew up in East St. Louis, the right. son of a high school football coach. That's right. Fred Cameron, an 86% winner, coached teams that were regarded top high school teams in the nation. And across the way to Assumption High School, also growing up at the same time, although I didn't know it at the time, was Dick Durbin. Wow. Did you know? You didn't know him. We didn't know each other until we met on the political beat. Now, you weren't a football player, but you were a broadcaster for the team, or what? Well, I started, I, never, I was never big enough to plug middle guard, so I started as a water boy, and then a trainer, then a referee, then a broadcaster at IU, Indiana University, and enjoyed every step of the way. Did you actually do play-by-play -play for their football team? Uh, not for the Flyers, and I did color at IU, but I did a lot of high school football while I was in college in places like Decatur, where the lights went out for an hour and I had to fill the time, which was wonderful training one night. Uh, what did you was, talk about? But it was, uh, I just filled time with whatever was pending and going on in the state of high school football at the time. But it was really good training for later talking on your feet at places like uh, the DC 10 crash out at O'Hare to be able to fill time and talk without having a script. So you're a talker. I remember one time I was assigned to cover the, the arrival of the Pope at, uh, when Jane Byrne was mayor and yeah. I was at O'Hare. I'm not Catholic. I didn't know anything much about the religion, but I, I think I talked for four hours and I don't know what I said. It's a real talent for people in broadcasting. Mm -hmm. you, you have to be able to do that, especially with all these poor cable reporters who are thrown out there for 12, 14 hours a day and do 16 live shots if they're on a big story, and they have to be able to fill. Now, you've covered how many mayors? Is it eight? I think we're up to eight, yeah. Okay. Let's go down the list okay. for the people that you've covered and, and talk about some of your memories of each. Richard J. Daly. Really miss this guy. This was back in the days when patronage was king and the, uh, the Central Committee of the Democratic Party, which he also chaired, was the one who made people. This was back in the day of don't send nobody, nobody sent. You had to have a letter from your ward committeeman to get a job at City Hall. 
it's interesting that this problem really has never completely gone away. Just this week, Karen Yarbrough, the new county clerk, is being uh, sued again by Mike Shackman because uh, he found that uh, he's a legend, that she's guilty of illegal patronage hiring at the uh, county clerk's office, which David Orr used to hold, uh, 50 years after Shackman filed his initial suit uh, trying to prevent it. And in this press room at City Hall at the time, it was all white men. Yeah. Uh, Daly was very colorful, very candid. He would say to us things like, uh, there's some dishonest newspaper people in this town. I could spit on some from here. <laughs> <laughs> he was very powerful and very intimidating. Were you afraid of him? Well, not afraid because a couple of us, Bob Crawford of BBM, and I would sit on opposite sides of the front row of the, of the press conference room, and we would ask the tough questions. And my husband, Dick Stone, also. And Dick Stone. Yeah. And we would simply pose the question that he didn't want to answer, and when he ducked and turned to his right or left, then Dick or Bob would do the follow-up question and try to force him into the answer. And it worked. But how often did he have press conferences? Uh, he had a lot, actually. What he, he did. did rarely was give one-on-one -on -one interviews. Right. I remember my husband had one of the only radio interviews with him. And I think he did meet the press once, and he did terribly, right? And then he never did it again? Yeah, he did Fahey Flynn. Remember that name? Yeah, sure. For local TV. And did quite well. Uh, not that it was a very challenging interview. And he did Walter Cronkite the night uh, after the police riot at the conventions, oh. and uh, Cronkite regretted he wasn't tougher on daily. Now, did you cover the 68 convention? No, I came the year after that. I was on a desk in New York City at NBC uh, watching the feeds from Chicago. So you got your start on that desk in NBC. How That's did right. you get your start? Or so you graduate IU, and then what happens? Well, at IU was a really good mentor, Dick Yoakum who was a pal of another IU guy who happened to be at NBC News in New York, and they arranged for me to come there for the summer. Uh, they didn't have a job for me at the time, and so I went to graduate school at Illinois, down at Champaign, and it was a year later of master's study that I came up the road to start as a TV news vacation relief reporter at NBC in Chicago, which at the time NBC News ran the local O&O news departments. That all ended at about 72, and that's what caused all the changes in the lack of standards and uh, new ways for local TV news. So you were writing for TV or yeah, I writing was, for... I would go back in the back with a film editor and write what the anchors would say leading into it. Real boring work, actually. Uh. But by Halloween, when the vacation relief period was over, they decided to keep a couple of us and sent me into radio, where I've been ever since. Okay, and did you cover City Hall right away? or? No, I was a, a, an editor in radio for one year, but was interviewing people like Paul Simon, Lieutenant Governor of Illinois at the time. So I was doing politics, doing phoners from the desk to embellish the WMAQ radio news. And then a year later, I hit the street and came to City Hall and... Uh, it was an interesting time because it was old school, City Hall press room, with uh, there was no Me Too moment, uh, movement at the time, and uh, people like Harry Golden Jr. were there for Chicago Sun-Times, 
a hard-drinking, heavy-smoking city hall reporter, but who knew more about the budget than the alderman, and Jay McMullen, who went on to marry Jane Burns, Jenny huh? Byrne, and literally told Esquire magazine, I can roll over in bed and scoop the Tribune. And when asked by the uh, Esquire magazine copy editor, do you really want to leave that in? He said, yes. <laughs> and he, they gave him the key to the Sherman House when the Sherman House closed because he had so many trysts there. That's the rumor. That, but uh, yeah, those were the days and not very good ones in that way at yeah. all. <laughs> for the first for woman, my money. I think the first woman sent over to be a city hall reporter was Ellen Warren, who right. is still active on the style pages of the Chicago Tribune. She came over for the Daily News, I want to say, and there were constant fights between her and the old men of the city hall press room. And I got to tell you, Ellen Warren gave as good as she got. Well, and then when I came over there for WIND Radio, mm -hmm. and people don't maybe not, don't remember this, but I was a WIND Radio reporter before uh, that station uh, went Spanish. Um, I was treated that way as well. Mm -hmm. I remember Harry would go to lunch, and he would say he'd come back and say, "Did I have any calls?" And I I'd look at him and say, "I'm not your secretary." There you go. So. It was a different time. Let's go to some of the other mayors. Mike Belandic, who was the the placeholder, right? Uh, terrible fit for mayor, wasn't he? Well, he's just as Eddie Bradoliak used to say. His idea of a good Friday night was light a candle, pour a glass of wine, and read the city council journal <laughs> or <laughs> the was, phone book. <laughs> or he was just—I mean, he, he still lived with his mother. He was just totally boring. But Tommy Donovan got him installed as acting mayor upon the death of uh, Richard J. Daley. He promised on the day the city council made him acting mayor that he wouldn't run for it, but then did. And that first year of Mike Belandic, I gotta say, was the most boring of all my years uh, at City Hall. I mean, we used to joke that automatic doors would not open for Mike Belandic. But when Janie Byrne jumped in and uh, became his enemy. She was the Consumer Services Commissioner, and uh, she and Jay plotted a scheme to uh, run against him, which uh, she did in the next primary, and knocked him off. Uh, that, after that first year when that plot began, it got interesting all of a sudden because she uh, named him as part of the cabal of evil men. And she so accused him, of, and Verdoliak and Burke, of greasing a cab fare increase. That's right. Uh, I never heard the term <laughs> greasing like right. it was, you know, used that way, but that they plotted to have a, a cab fare increase mm -hmm. for their buddies at Checker when Checker had a monopoly on the cab industry, which right. of course is how things have changed now with ride hailing and everything. Yep. Uh, but she testified before a grand jury, remember that? We right. staked her out at the federal building and mm -hmm. she showed up to testify. I always thought that Belandic did not only lose because of how he handled the blizzard of 79. What did you think? Well, I thought that was a really stupid decision to shut down uh, L-stops in the black community during the blizzard of 79. You would have thought Fred Rohde, the first water alderman, or somebody would have talked him out of that. But during that, that period, Mike was so unprepared and making so many political mistakes. I mean, he was even wearing insulated underwear for the cameras 
outside of his shirt. Yeah, like it was a sweater. <laughs> I remember we covered him and he was wearing it like a pullover sweater. Right. But he was so out of touch right. with the, the suffering that was going on on the streets of Chicago. And I remember covering a precinct captain luncheon across the street at the Bismarck, mm. which is no longer the Bismarck, it's the palace. But he compared himself to Jesus Christ on the cross. Do you remember Un that? Unbelievable. I mean, this one stupid thing after another. Just, and the other thing was, he promised to clear space for people to park where they hadn't been cleared. Our, our colleague Bob Davis at the time, wonderful, another guy I really missed, the late Bob Davis, who wrote for the City Hall for the Chicago Tribune, uh, sent a photog out to one of the school lots. Right which supposedly had been cleared for parking. Mayor Belandic says you should park here. Yes, with a big arrow <laughs> to a snow-covered, you know, so it was just a disaster. But the reason I say that it wasn't just the snow, if you remember, Belandic was going to become party chairman. He wanted to be party chairman. Mm -hmm. He was going to make his move. He was starting to believe his own press releases. Right. Not only did he renege on his promise not to run, but he also was getting a little too big for his britches. So the committeemen wanted to take him down a notch. They didn't want him to lose, but they wanted to take him down. And so they didn't push him either. Right. They didn't do any real, you know, the palm cards and everything, the door to door. They didn't push him at all. So I always thought it wasn't just the snow. It was mm -hmm. other a little bit of some other things as well. And Don Rose coached uh, Jane Byrne beautifully on how to exploit all of these things in the primary and knock off Mike Belandic. All right, now Jane Byrne. I mean, I don't think we, all of us, ever worked as hard as we did in the first two years of right. Jane Byrne. So true. Talk Catch her at the front door going in in the morning and she'd say A. Catch her at the, uh, the front door going to lunch, she'd say B, it would be completely different catcher going out at the end of the day and you'd be back to A or on to C. It was just, you know, uh, it was, and the revolving door nature of all of her cabinet, people going in and out so quickly, her making one of them she fired stand there at a press conference to Dick announce Pavia, his, that's the water, right, water commissioner. commissioner. I mean, it was really, it was so controversial that Don Rose uh, regretted coaching her on how to become mayor. And she blew it in the biggest way. She was wildly popular when she got in. Mm -hmm. She could have been mayor for life if she wanted to. And what happened to make her blow it so bad? Well, as Bob Davis again said, Jane Byrne had a whim of iron. And the decisions she made were so bad. Here's another set of decisions. She replaced three blacks on two city boards. One was CHA, one was the school board with two or three whites. I mean, it was... Well, because she was obsessed with Richard M. Daley. Jay had it, her believing uh -huh. that he was the real threat. He was the boogeyman. Yep. And that's why she fired all his people. That's why all there were, there were so many Shackman things. And, uh, and he, he got... And so that's how Harold Washington that's right. ran up the middle. Uh, Rich Daley and Jane Byrne divided the white vote, and Harold ran up the middle with 34 or 5% of the vote and won the primary. Then went on to uh, beat Saul Epton in the, uh, not Saul Epton, but Bob Epton, what was Epton? Bernard Ep Epton. Bernard Epton, who was an otherwise liberal who uh, allowed himself to be used by uh, 
people who put out the before it's too late commercial, right. you know, which was racism and code. And uh, he almost won, but Harold did slip through. So Harold Washington was fun as hell oh, because yeah. he used the biggest words I ever heard. Some of them <laughs> I wasn't sure he knew what the meaning were, but lots of jetsam. <laughs> he was he was charming. That's right. And endearing and didn't get a lot done because of the whole Verdoliac thing. And he had a boogeyman to blame. Yeah, but he probably won the PR battle with everybody sure. because he was a ref alleged reform mayor, as in to form again, I would say. But uh, the mere fact that the black community was able to elect one of their own with help from a coalition of whites on the northwest side uh, was monumental for the city and was uh, made uh, the city, I guess later Beirut on the lake, as he used to call it, because of his council wars fight with Eddie V and Ed Burke. Ed Burke, the role he played in that council wars, what he allowed himself to be used to do, That's the right. extreme positions, it was mind boggling. And it was, there's a misconception about race being the primary factor in the council wars. It was really about control of the money Sure. And race. For Verdoliac, but Burke seemed more extreme in that way. I'd say it, the worst label I'd put on Ed at the time was he Ed was. Ed Burke? A, yeah, Ed Burke was. He was perhaps a passive racist, not an outrageous racist. But for Eddie, Eddie V and Harold, it was about they money. were wonderful playing off each other, and both of them knew it. And I, I never thought that Eddie V was even a passive racist. No, no, his, his, his color was green. No, That's right. No question about it. Good way to put it. So Gene Sawyer gets in, and he really delivers most of Harold Washington's ag agenda mm -hmm. and got a lot done. But in the infamous meeting after Harold's death of December 3rd and 4th, or 2nd and 3rd of 1977. Uh, 87. They, 87. Yeah. When they finally decided on Gene Sawyer behind closed doors, Poor Jean had to be carried out of the council right. chamber or into it with the help of people on both shoulders holding him up. Right. He was so nervous about the appointment. But he, the, the white guys figured they had to put a black guy in to succeed Harold. And when they controlled. And uh, Dick Mell came close to putting in Terry Gabinski, a white Polish fellow, uh, but they couldn't make the deal. And so they literally carried Jean Sawyer in and he became the mayor. Okay, so now we have Richard M. Daley, who I always thought tremendously talented in terms of the political sense and the street sense. Mm -hmm. He had the ability to feel and to be real in public, to cry, to laugh, to get angry, mm -hmm. very angry. He was great tape, as I like to say. Yeah, you saved all those tapes, mm -hmm. but the corruption unbelievable amount of it. Why, what happened with him? Well, I think that for the first term or so, there were some people around him who restrained his uh, worst political instinct. But as they drifted away into their own side jobs to get uh, you know some revenue for themselves. Uh, the Ed Bedores, Tim Degnan, Jerry right. Joyce. Yeah. As those guys went away, Daly was getting uh, political advice that wasn't so good. Um, Jackie Hurd, who was his longtime press secretary and still is out in the private sector, was able to keep him a little bit on the straight and narrow. But, uh, you know, things were allowed to happen which were corrupt and hurt him again and again. 
and uh, in some cases reduced him to tears, as you know. But, you know, his malapropisms showed that he really was a regular guy, perhaps a little naive about the corruption. And uh, Naive that, about it, or did he have buffers, as he used to say? Hired trucks, city hiring, minority contracting, his nephew, all the nepotism, all the contracts, his son. Did you, do you really believe he didn't know any of that? I don't believe that. I think he did. But I think he felt in the patronage system, uh, you have to, you know, reward those who bring you to the, uh, to the uh, party. And so that's kind of what he was doing in most of those instances. Now, he was very careful, never got charged or indicted, was very careful to hush people around him in, in settings, even private, about what they would say to him that might indicate a knowledge. Right, never talked on of, a cell phone, right. didn't trust his bodyguards. Even out in the stands at Soldier Field with Bill Clinton or somebody watching a game, he would hush him with the Secret Service standing around sure. with an earshot to make sure that nothing was something that could be testified to under oath in a grand jury. And lawyered himself up real good even when he was called in for depositions. Yeah, I mean, they questioned him in his office, which was an unbelievable thing. That's right. Anyway. You could point to some settlements, by the way, that prevented depositions that oh. might have gotten him into trouble. Oh, sure. He, I mean, all the bird stuff he avoided. He has right. yet to sit for a deposition. That's right. I think he learned this at the knee of his father, Richard J. Daly, because when you talk to the old timers like uh, oh, uh, Rostenkowski would describe a meeting with Daly, not to be the boss telling us what to do, but the rest of us indicating what maybe we should do in these situations. And uh, Daly, perhaps with his fingers on his chin, would uh, say nothing but send with his gesture in assent that that's what we should do. Get the difference? Yeah. Nothing can be testified against you. Right. And Rahm Emanuel. Well, here's a guy who had the world by the ass like so many uh, who just blew it. I mean, just so unlikable. And even he um, concedes the point that part of him being held to two terms is because he just wasn't a likable guy. But he was wonderful at shaking the federal money tree and forcing people to do things to get the job done. You talk to any of his commissioners or people who were taking his marching orders, and they laugh about how Rahm was constantly on the phone to them, making sure the job got done. Uh, but you know, the Laquan McDonald thing, he, he just couldn't escape the notion that they sat on the video, even though he denied it. And that just, you know, raised the specter of uh, making it troublesome for him to get himself reelected to uh, a third term. So you believe, as I do, that he didn't run because he couldn't win? Well, I think that's true, and he can't bring himself, nor would any politician say he couldn't win. But 99% of the time, the only reason a successful politician doesn't run again is because he or she thinks they can't win. Can he run again for anything? Uh, not sure he would want to. He's busy making money again in banking and loves being a pundit with his old friend George Stephanopoulos on ABC and still rings the phone talking to people like you and me to keep up to date on what things are happening and plant vicious ideas <laughs> in right. our minds. Uh, so he's still planting the dead fish rolled up in newspapers and 
sending them around. But the leaker in chief as Bill Daly once called him. That's right. So true. So true. So, Lori Lightfoot, what do you think? I think for the first time in all my 50 years, the voters, despite how few there really are to this day in Chicago, really have sent the message by giving her all 50 wards that, yes, candidate, we are ready for reform. The question remains, can Lori Lightfoot pull reform off? Because I think deep down she wants to do it and she has deep experience in law enforcement and police reform, but she doesn't have deep experience in money and the billion dollar money problems are the ones I you know, still, still don't know that she can solve because they turn to huge political problems because how you have to cut budgets, maybe borrow more money and tax the poor beleaguered taxpayer more money. So it's you know, when she says she's willing to sacrifice her political future to she get may the reform have to. done, she may have to. And to keep the progressives happy is going to be one tall order. Can you ever keep the progressives happy? No, and they have such a long laundry list, and she made so many promises that she's not going to be able to keep. Yeah. Before we go, is 50 years enough? Uh, well, you know, I, it may be enough. It's got me thinking about retirement because 50 years may be enough. And another 51st commuting in the cold Chicago winter, that may be too far. So thinking about retirement. Well, if you do, it's going to be one great loss for me personally, for the city of Chicago, for your listeners. And thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Franny, for making me feel a little important. <laughs> you are. And we'll see you all next week. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. Like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on AutoTrader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.